0: Who must walk the line? In honor of Straight Outta Compton, which musician would you like to see get a biopic?
1: I'm Katie Rich, and I'm still holding out hope for that Freddie Mercury biopic.
0: Hey, it's me, David the Seven, Alfred Matthew Yankovic, the
2: weirdest style. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Clara Rockmore, the greatest theremin player in all of theremin history.
3: <laughs> and I'm David Ehrlich, and in honor of the announcement of her new album, I'm going to go with Joanna Newsom, just because I really want to see what her marriage to Andy Samberg is like.
2: It's, a great it's probably point. full of giggles. I Why thought she probably... played harp. Why is she singing what? in that video? What? She sings in her video. Does she sing? Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Oh. I don't really Did
3: you, I don't... like miss
0: all of Joanna Newsom <laughs> she, that has existed previous to this. The,
3: she has never released a single song on which she is not singing. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room.
0: Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh?
1: Good. Then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then and, and I'm fine. I agree
2: with you. It's great to be fine. It's
1: a Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 82 for Tuesday, August 11th. Still the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown. We're all four back together and uh, we have one new review, two new reviews, some new reviews. Two
3: new week. reviews. Woohoo! The first, by Indie 7 <laughs> solo says, Slow Clap for Mr. Patches. Oh, Which is also <laughs> the name of my Doomcore band.
2: <laughs>
3: jimmy stewart impression incredible
2: that's it
1: i knew that would get the listeners on board
2: and then i'm, I'm surprised we didn't i i thought angry reviews were coming after no, that no. you <laughs> desecrated
1: <laughs> the memory of a hollywood icon yes
3: and then
2: uh honk lover
3: 69 says why i listen aside from the fun insightful movie reviews and discussion i listen to this podcast for the following reasons one I'm fascinated by the Dave Gonzalez, David Chen, Joanna Robinson multi-podcast nerd love triangle, and I tune in each week to find out if Dave Seven has finally challenged Chen to a duel for the heart of his true podcast lady love.
2: We My should I- do that as a segment on our <laughs> podcast. I feel like that My would be a huge prediction. crossover episode, celebrity Ooh. death match. We can maybe, yeah, we'll do it as claymation. Too many Dave's. There's a whole Dr.
0: Seuss book about it.
3: Is that they end up killing each other? And then, the obviously evil Davindra Hardwar will swoop in and snatch her up. Two. Wow. I am looking for clues in my ongoing investigation into how a website called Latino-Review.com became the pre-eminent source of questionable comic book movie rumor leaks. Three. I really like long, involved stories about how one person meets up with another person they know's parents in improbable locations. Four. I like how Matt and <laughs> Ehrlich totally have old guy voices and diction, but when you Google image search them, they appear to be 23 year old hipsters.
2: Appear to be. <laughs> appear, to appear to be. be. <laughs> Three,
3: you guys. I, I don't think my picture has been taken in, in, in a while. I uh, am now 90% gray. S- five. Katie seems to know what she's talking about. Six. I have, a weird, <laughs> I have a weird thing for honking clown horns, but best not to get into that. Anyway, keep up the good work.
1: Last I heard was that I seem to know what I'm talking about.
3: To our podcast.
1: That's my job. All right.
3: Uh, today, for our first segment, uh, I'm really proud and excited for our first segment tonight. Uh, it is a, it is going to be led by none other. No one else could could, <laughs> could do this. Uh, no one in the world than Dave Gonzalez. Uh, and the subject, eight
2: Sunday nights in the making.
3: <laughs> right. Finally the subject here. Of our tidbit this evening is going to be about the and bear with us the merits of True Detective season two, which wrapped up last night in a maelstrom of awfulness uh yeah but Dave, uh, what
0: am i trying to do in this segment Dave just uh because i would and
3: we are just going to give him the floor to explain to the rest of the world i think i likened it on twitter to uh to this not being a debate necessarily so much as listening to someone try and convince us that the sun is blue uh I, someone argued it was a matter of perception i think that's the most reasonable argument We'll be able to find, but Dave, please take it away. Explain to us the the virtues of True Detective season two, Nick Pizzolatto's magnum opus.
0: Um, I think that in I, well, I guess in dialogue with itself as an anthology series that is about a uh, um, genre and America. I would be able to compare it, I guess to like American Horror Story, which is also a show that I enjoy and occasionally uh, talk up on this podcast, just in terms of what I'm looking for with these anthology series that are you know written by somebody that knows they're writing to a conclusion and therefore can be do very conscious character motion on television, unlike uh, most other televisions existed uh, through history, which is in sort of a conversation with an audience, um, that now uh, things like uh, True Detective can sort of spin off very specific uh, meditations. On uh, certain things. Uh, it, it has never really been plot, uh, no matter how much uh, we all try to make it about that at the beginning of the uh, season of True Detective, which I think is a mistake that a lot of people made at the beginning of this season. Much like they made at the beginning of the first season in thinking that, uh, you know, that necessarily when you're being told a story that plot uh, matters. But, you know, but usually.
1: The like on- king mattered at all
0: that the Yellow King mattered, uh, that everything, you know, that it was the type of series like Lost where you'd want to be looking at like the books on the bookshelf, or that there was like weird subliminal plants. Um, the first season is definitely superior to the second season because it has that unified vision also in a director that's sort of challenging Nick Pizzolatto's writing. Uh, this one doesn't so much. So you have Episode to episode, you can't really depend on the director delivering the same sort of consistent tone uh, to either enhance or contrast against what the script is trying to say, which led to um, a lot of things that I think are inherent in the L.A. mystery genre and the noir, whatever it is, because it's not like a genre necessarily. It's more like a mood or attitude of film. Uh, if you take those two things and slam a lot of the tropes that have been in film and television with those stories together, uh, it's, you know, it's all depressing. And it's all about uh, examining masculinity through a whole bunch of different things. And it's uh, corrupt towns and hard to follow plots. Um, For me, this season had a lot of humor once you got down on its level i mean things like uh blue balls of the heart is i think funny i mean whether or not the author intended it to be funny it is it everything uh, is fucking
2: that's a great line
0: everything is fucking is also a great line (laughs) there are punchlines that are supposed to be there but then they're also uh just being so deep into a genre knowing that this series is going to take it all the way there you find your moments of levity uh, in the lines that are just so deadly serious. Uh, I think that this season suffered by not having uh as strong a performance as the first season. Uh, there's something about, uh you know, Southern nihilism that Matthew McConaughey brings across in the performance that, like, Vince Vaughn, even though he's trying to do this whole meditation on what it means to make something of yourself and pass that on to another generation, it never really gets across because I don't think Vince Vaughn was capable of really selling the difference between his character putting up a front and his character being his gangster self. Oh. But, you know, Colin Farrell and Rachel McAdams put up uh, good good performances and Taylor Kitsch did a pretty good job with what he was given, so I par-
3: think. Part of what con- concerns <laughs> me about what?
1: your... Wait, wait, should we let them finish I, before well, uh, gonna, the rebuttal? No, I'm I mean...
3: poke him with a stick in the directions in which yeah. I'd like him to go. Okay. Uh, okay. Part of what concerns me about your assessment of the series or of the season uh, or is that it sounds like you're praising it for what it is and not about how it is it how it goes about telling the story uh it, it sounds to me like you are correctly and and acutely assessing it for being this sort of the kind of twisty la noir that that it is Um, Well, what
0: I want to avoid is a conversation about what makes things good for you and what makes things good for me, because we could have that conversation and I'm not sure anybody would like win. I'm sure I have like a whole bunch of quips that I can maybe come up with that are like, you know, don't eat even when you're hungry. But like, that's just like weird callback stuff. This
3: segment is about what made the show good for you, because I don't think that most people listening, in all fairness, need to be told what made the show bad for me.
0: Right. Um, Especially recently with a whole bunch of binge TV show and uh, comedies like What Hot American Summer, like BoJack Horseman, which, you know, are both uh, hyper continuity, but also meant to be sort of binged uh, because they're light and they're funny. Uh, It's interesting that this got fed to us one week at a time and was still too dense for a lot of people. Uh, I spent, you know, my time in between episodes trying to figure out why different people came to different understandings that I did or if I was missing anything or what I was supposed to know and what I was supposed to be vague. And, you know, so when things like the episode where all of a sudden we care about Stan's family, people are like, well, why do we care about Stan? And by that point, I'd already like thought over the past episodes so much that I realized I wasn't really supposed to care about Stan. Like it was all about the interactions that came about through Stan's death. So for me, I felt like I really early on caught that because it was an anthology series and because it had a single writer that it in its first few episodes was going to telegraph what it was on a very uh, mood tone level and not like a plot character uh, level. It sort of did a little bit more than I wanted to with the first two episodes in terms of setting up these like novelistic backstories for the characters, but... It was communicating to me that it was going to be this tangled Chinatown-like mess, uh, which, you know, was sort of like the first season. At some point in the middle of the season, you just start watching for performances and waiting for the mystery to sort of uh, reveal itself
2: to you. I want to just chime in because I feel like I'm somewhere between David and Dave on this I, I'm one
3: speaking on behalf of the american people this is no not i know me. i
2: know you are the majority opinion on this one that that is very clear but from every sunday night people
3: this is what this is this is i'm not even inserting myself into the conversation necessarily this is uh the collective opinion of the world and right dave.
2: and i'm saying i'm between that and dave um and and i and dave i totally
1: mars to have your opinion because dave david
2: yes apparently i can no longer be on the planet uh what i did take away enjoyment from this season of true detective but i am not like dave in that i don't really i didn't really follow it i couldn't follow it it was impossible it's it's a totally impenetrable show that i agree is pretty much about nothing because the mystery unlike the last season did not hook me in such a way that I wanted to talk about it after. Or unlike Dave, I didn't go and read about it or process the clues, go back and search for things and just try and put this mystery together as the characters did. I had absolutely no interest. But for one hour on Sundays, I I got to immerse myself in a total weirdo's you know, vision. I think Nick mm-hmm. Pizzolatto really succeeds in being true to himself for better or worse. And it's a really clear voice and it's very strange. And the humor is totally, you know, I, I you know, having random jokes about vaping. Uh, and it's so angry and it's so, and it's so stuck in the mud about Los Angeles. It's like Nick Pizzolatto, just move, you know, get See, out of LA. I what's wrong I with actually
3: you? I would make the argument that this, this season was about more, more, uh, particular nuanced and, and to me at least interesting ideas and themes and topics than the first season was. Uh, it tried it was to be. Just, it certainly
2: dabbled in them, but all yeah, this conversation just, about like fatherhood, fathers and sons know, and, or yes. fathers I and mean, kids a, like goes I nowhere. I was
3: going to say, I think that it, the reason that it was the most insufferable television that I've ever uh, you know, masochistically forced myself to endure at least seven eighths of I missed the penultimate episode because, you know, I'm not immortal. I have things to do. Uh, but the it, it, is that it went about it in such in painful ways. I mean, the storytelling was was so clear, it was so unfocused, was so up its own ass. So I couldn't. And I'm trying to give something like this, particularly something that's as voicey, uh, which is rare to find in television, as this was. The benefit of the doubt at every turn, but I couldn't help get the feeling as we went along. Uh, and I hate to ascribe diagnoses these sort of things, but it was really unavoidable that it was like somebody who had to whip together an essay the night before that it was due.
2: Uh, I, I, I tend to agree with that, and I th- this season feels very reactionary to a lot of the criticisms of the first season, as opposed to, you know, not only was Kerry Fukunaga there to kind of challenge Pizzolatto on his decisions or his directions for... Season one, um, and having great actors—only two of them, I think—is key too. Um, the duality the, of these two the characters and clashing I them think
3: was so crucial. I think the the chronology and the fractured chronology of the first season was so important to help. Right, there's a lot of public a lot, that yeah. Story there's a lot a of things.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of ways that form and craft seem to be reckoning with the writing, and and season two is drowning in the writing it in also a way, felt and like, like, like parody of the first season.
3: I mean, Uh, everything is is
2: amplified
3: and and stretched to such a degree that from Vince Vaughn's character in the very first episode, uh, the first first season is the the first season, which of course they're not because Nick Pizzolatto, I don't think. Self, well, his think, sense of humor is that denigra- self-denigrating but
2: i think that emerges from the being reactionary to season 1 like oh i need to have four characters or and one of them needs to be a woman and one of them's going to be gay and we're going to really deal like i'm going to confront masculinity because that's what I, everyone hated my season 1 like if there was anything <laughs> wrong with season 1 it was going to be about how bro it was but by doing that And still being Nick Pizzolatto, only being able to write like one type of character, all four of these people are exactly the same thing, including Rachel McAdams, who's just one of the guys. It's so strange.
3: The finale was such a shitstorm that there wasn't even an outcry over the scene where Rachel McAdams' character says that she was proud to be raped because it meant that she was pretty. There was such a deluge of bullshit. Why should there be an outcry over that? Because it's the internet,
2: Dave. (laughs) There's
3: an outcry well, this this. If right, this, David's not uh,
2: saying that there should be. It's just there it, always it, is because it it's so the
3: telling edit. about how much wrong there was to the show, and in particular, the just gobsmackingly awful finale, that uh, this didn't even I rank actually anybody liked, or make waves. I dug
2: the finale quite a bit, and I think with the season, right there, Matt. another, another <laughs> yes. reason to watch season two, if there is any, I mean, I don't know if I'd recommend going back and watching it, but I really like how weird it gets. And I like when it apes uh, Twin Peaks. You know, I really liked the Conway Twitty uh, limbo scene, uh, and I like <laughs> in the finale when Vince Vaughn's walking in this death limbo as well, just uh, the spirit journey. Just-
1: didn't you just wish you were watching Twin Peaks? Yes. Like, and then you were I... When talking about watching like a, a unique voice on television expressing himself, I was like, that just sounds like I should rewatch Twin Peaks. Well, it's also so, Twin Peaks. To be clear, Peaks. I stopped watching this after two... I got to the Conway mm-hmm. Twitty oh, yeah. thing. Oh, Saw what happened to Colin Farrell and stuff. I
2: wanted watching. to know why and you I... gave up.
1: Oh, because I had heard nothing but bad things about the next two episodes that I had screeners of and then other things happened and no one ever gave me a good we're reason wrap to wrap this keep up. watching. We're going
3: to wrap this up. But I, I think it's just safe to say that we can all agree that Sunday night... Between the season finale of True, True Detective and the sixth episode of Ballers may have been the least essential Sunday evening of television that this world has ever known. But HBO may God. reclaim, <laughs> reclaim
2: <laughs> that Sunday night with uh, Show Me a Hero, the new David Simon miniseries starting this my, Sunday. So.
3: I'm going to hold my breath. I'm not going to hold my breath on that one. Hold um, your breath. Rick
0: and Morty's also back. So, you know, Sunday night's still OK. What's back? Rick and Morty.
2: We'll always have Rick and Morty.
0: We'll We'll always have Rick and Morty.
3: Uh, For a mini segment this week, we are going to be talking about an aspect of uh, possibly one of the only redeeming aspects of a new film by an auteur named Guy Ritchie called The Man from UNCLE. Uh, And the element about about the film that we're going to be talking about are the costumes. The movie, uh, for whatever its flaws and virtues, and we'll discuss them (laughs) in greater detail in our review segment this week, uh, has wonderful costume design. It's very... Uh, fun hip mod 60s feel to it Alicia Vikander in particular wears the designs well Uh, and so the question that I'm posing to the panel this evening is what movie's costumes transcended the glamour and of the milieu of the aesthetic of that particular film and became an asset a meaningful asset to the storytelling for you
2: Katie
1: oh damn it this is this was your idea to begin with (laughs) um
2: thank you for the credit
1: You're welcome. Uh, I was, I kind of, I don't know if I immediately thought of it, but I I think modern day costume design doesn't give a lot of credit the way that they dress people who are walking around in the world. And I was thinking about Nicole Hollis and her movies, which are always about a very specific world of people and the costumes do a ton to make that specific world of people seem real. (laughs) Uh, And even in, in Please Give, there's a pair of jeans that's like a central plot point of it. And I don't want to say this is because she's a woman, she's making movies that care about clothes, but she has really specific costume design in all of her films that really give you a sense of the world, which is something that a lot of comedies don't have. Like a generic comedy where you get no sense of these being real people, that's less attention to the costume design than something like Nicole Hollis will do.
2: Hollis, you have seen Nicole Hollisenter's movies, and you just look up and you say, "Yeah, yes, that does represent white women in America." Yeah. thank and you. And I want thank you for representing. The, I
1: want all of the flowy <laughs> shirts that uh, any of her characters get to wear. So I just hope put you get that. A Nicole Hollisenter movie, please. Patches.
2: Oh me. Well, I'm going to I'm oh, I'm actually going to go on a similar note and maybe my overexposure to the world of Esquire is influencing this observation. Ooh. But I do think that I think of American Psycho and I think of all of Christian Bale's suits and how important they are to the man and, you know, f- kind of how bespoke they are and how evil they make him, how, you know, the the angles of the shoulder pads and the perfect ties and everything is perfect and I think those suits really do something to that movie that make him more villainous, make him crazier because they're so perfectly tailored, so bespoke
1: hey. I
0: guess, yeah, me, me, me yeah. Uh, I'm gonna go with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman costume from Batman Returns which is done by a costume designer named Mary Vought, V-O-G-T I believe, Vote vote Vot? Well, anyway who knows how that's uh, that's pronounced the important thing is that uh it's selena kyle like literally piecing her life back together into a new personality uh much like her becoming sequence which is also one of the greater superhero movie sequences of all time but yeah awesome costume and it like looks like sleek and liquid and but she's powerful i, I like it a lot
3: and I am going to go with Atonement, uh, in particular the dress that Kira Knightley wears in the sequence where young Saoirse Sharonin as Bryony, spies her uh, having sex with, uh, what's his face?
1: James McElroy. Thank
3: you. Um, but she perceives the event to be something of a altogether more violent nature, and that dress, its bright green color, is becomes sort of a beacon for memory for her that haunts her for... Until she's an old woman, played by Vanessa Redgrave, with the same haircut. Uh, I think that that dress needed to be that indelible in order for the various strands of the movies to connect. Uh, and I think it's an essential, not just a prop or a costume, but an essential element of that film's storytelling.
1: Yeah, Toneman. Doctor's orders, go fuck yourself. Take two of in the morning,
2: don't think of yourself. Listen, this
3: is my evaluation. This shit oversaturated. Y'all can get evacuated. Heads up an activist, and ain't even activated. every to the MNS. Stuck in place salivate. ain nobody graduate. Don't nobody love this shit the way I love it. I uh, for our uh, segment three this evening, we are going to be talking about something that a lot of people have been talking about recently, in regards to both Ant-Man, Fantastic Four, and I think uh, to a lesser degree, we'll be talking about in regards to the Man from U.N.C.L.E. as well, which are the shadow versions of movies, the hypothetical version of a movie that was teased to our imagination, but did not actually manifest into reality. When all was said and done, we were left with a different and, is often the case, perceived uh, to be lesser version of the same film. With with Ant Man, after Edgar Wright was summarily dismissed because uh, he wanted to make a good movie and Marvel wanted to make a Marvel movie, uh, we got peyton reads ant-man and a lot of people were very preoccupied with what we didn't get what what edgar Wright's ant-man would have looked like in contrast or, to or better Reed's yet film.
2: trying to like watching the movie and parsing out what sure uh edgar had done already for some sure reason.
3: uh in the case of fantastic four uh in a little bit more of a, a debacle uh josh Trank is sort of at war with himself or one it's one director and two versions of the film really and this is a now, first time this happened in film history of any stretch, but uh, there were clearly some, and Dave has well documented on his Twitter feed over the weekend, uh, there were clearly some hijinks behind the scenes with Fantastic Four. A lot of the footage that was in the trailers and commercials and whatnot uh, did not make into the 93 minute film, which was normally short for a movie of that type. Uh, Josh Trank took to Twitter, uh, not understanding how the internet works necessarily because he tweeted, and then deleted a few minutes later as though no harm had been done, uh, that his version of the movie that he had a year ago was great and would have gotten good reviews, but didn't get released. Um, It's clear that a lot went on to to defenestrate that movie, um, and a lot of people are rushing to give Josh Trank the benefit of the doubt. I think even um, my inclination, uh, although I haven't thought about it too much, is that uh, as someone who thought Chronicle was, was garbage, more or less, and would never... Dare spend ninety minutes, let alone two hours of his life, seeing Fantastic Four. Uh, that Josh Trank's movie is probably slightly better, just because one cook in the kitchen versus twenty, you know, studio executives trying right. to tear it down to
2: nothing. Uh, is, it wouldn't be as sporadic and schizophrenic,
3: correct. no matter what the. Right, end it would
2: probably be a little hey, bit more.
3: Tomorrow would have been spared that wig. Yeah, exactly. maybe. <laughs> at a certain point when you're slicing and dicing with reshoots like that, um, it's not a good look. And then The Man From U.N.C.L.E. was developed uh, at length by Steven Soderbergh as a George Clooney vehicle. And that didn't fall apart in the grand spectacle uh, that either of the other two cases did. But that project fizzled. Uh, Guy Ritchie ended up taking it over with his own script. Um, His movie is... uh, It feels uncannily similar to trying to capture the same vibe as uh, Steven Soderbergh's heist movie. Something like Ocean's 12 was the real... Or Ocean's
2: Eleven, in. you know, the good or one. Ocean's
3: Eleven, sure. Um, and uh, you can definitely see that, uh, although they were working off the, the, sort, the same source material of the television show from the 60s that obviously informed the aesthetic of this movie, he was not starting from scratch. And it, clearly, it felt, to me at least, and this is definitely debatable, and we'll talk about it in the review episode, uh, like a lesser version of the Steven Soderbergh movie. So we have three, we have up for a trend. We have three movies that have happened in the last handful of weeks and dave has another reference point from recent history as well uh, and two, so i want to talk about, about our puts. preoccupation with these shadow movies go dave what were you going to say
0: oh i was going to say the the two movies that have sort of come up recently is a movie called uh, lost soul the doomed journey of richard stanley's island of dr burrow which has recently popped up on netflix and amc's horror streaming service Shudder. So, people have started talking about that. It is about how uh, the 90s version of Dr. Moreau was originally supposed to be cooler. And uh, the death <laughs> of uh, Superman Lives, What Happened? Uh, which uh, was also recently released at Comic Con uh, this year, which chronicles uh, the Tim Burton Superman movie that uh, wasn't. Hmm.
3: And I also. Oh,
0: go uh, on,
1: I think it's interesting, David, you talking about Soderbergh that no one ever talks about that Moneyball in that context, even though Soderbergh was fired like three days before it was supposed to go into production. And I wonder, I mean, maybe this is the launch point for the conversation. I wonder if because Moneyball, the actual movie turned out to be pretty good that no one seems that obsessed with what Soderbergh's. Well, I think
2: that is definitely key um, because his version is drastically different. I'd love to see that because his, his version of Moneyball was going to mix real interviews with uh, Major League baseball coaches. I, I believe yeah. or like old I players imagine
1: i imagine it's something like bernie maybe the way that bernie has real townspeople
2: maybe but i seem interview. to remember they would be like appearing like as ghostly figures in the film all right i'm not exactly Whoa. sure don't quote me on that mm. but it was it had a weirder melding tactic i think but even if it was just documentary footage it, it, it would have been i don't know why soderbergh was canned i guess that wasn't as marketable um, I, yeah,
1: I think they basically kind of had a panic and realized that 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 his version was too artsy. But was, I don't I don't know where I heard that, but somewhere.
2: I'm trying to remember when. So when were they going to make Moneyball? Moneyball go, went was, into production he, like did he fall out '09 or 10 because the movie came out in 2011. So that might have been I think he
1: fell out in 10. Like it, he fell out really late.
2: Yeah, and and even then, I mean it's hard it's weird to think 5 years ago just not the inter, the internet echo chamber that we have mm. today it's so weird um people are just latching on to these stories more and more because they're true well they're clickbaity that's why the media is all over them that's why the trades get involved and want to pick them apart and even speculate at this point but also on the reddit boards people just love a good mystery it's why they keep tuning into a uh, true detective right what <laughs> really happened it's a great question uh and it'll always be a great story and so, now that these things are saying... happening to superhero movies I mean, let's uh, be honest, that's really the big driving point, this sacred material.
3: So you think that the appeal and why people are so fixated on these is less about their their imagination uh, and about the movie that could have been uh, and that they'll never get to see and more about the behind-the-scenes drama as to what happened, that they're more interested in who fired who and for what reason than they are in... Uh, the actual creative process involved. Well,
2: I think it's a little bit of both. Definitely more of the latter, but they come from the same place. And we're almost talking about the reverse of what we talk about a lot on this podcast, which is um, the the anticipation factor. People who want to know everything about a movie before it comes out. Uh, now they want to know everything about a movie that has come out that we didn't get to see, because it's all about what you don't get and how you how your imagination can run wild with that. There's absolutely no reason to think that Josh Trank's Fantastic Four would have been a good movie. And, you know, we kind of dipped our toe into this conversation on the Fantastic Four review episode. And I tried to divorce myself from that. But like when I hear so many people championing Trank and what could have been I mean there's no evidence of that in the movie well but there's also the impulse
1: to defend a filmmaker against a studio like it's obvious that you know regardless of Josh Trank's problems as a director that the studio meddled heavily in what he made and I think I don't know I think the impulse to defend the director regardless of whether or not his movie would have been any good is understandable
0: I'm mostly on Katie's side in the sense that, like, you're never going to, like, yell a studio into, like, never having a career again, but you can yell a director into never having a career again. Mm. But it's the same sort of thing of why people like these stories is because they could have been really, really bad, but because some other stepped in and stopped it, be it, you know, fate or whatnot, uh, they could remain, you know, these things that could have potentially been great and they get to live with that potential as opposed to something like. We learned this week, or last week, that The, the Day the Clown Cried, the Jerry Lewis-Holler oh, yeah. documentary, Speaking is about, like...
1: Yeah, movies that are the story behind it more than they are the movie. Right.
0: right, and so that actually exists now in the Library of Congress, and they supposedly can show it in 10 years. But if you read quotes by, like, Harry Schreer, who actually saw it, he's like, it's not good. You, you just can't look away from it because somebody, like, took this idea all the way through as if it was good. So that's going to be something like where detective. it's like... his the. Maybe, maybe like True Detective, like the best part of True Detective is at the end of episode one, I guess it would be the, the equivalent. But like, yeah, that's the weird thing where it's like these, we like these stories, because especially when the movie that we got ended up being lackluster. Uh, the thought that there was a perfect thing but that, you know, the man somehow took it away from us is a very satisfying narrative as a fan, well, I know I guess for that's superhero true that properties. One of these
3: examples do have uh, a masterwork where people are still uh insatiable as far as needing to know more about what happened behind the scenes as far as the the discord. I mean I think there's you know something like Casablanca, it's always talk about um as if it were this sort of enchanted thing where uh, they were sort of flying by the seat of their pants, and because of the alchemy involved in production, it turned out so well. But it's not quite the same speculative. There's not quite the, there, there's not quite the same desire to know the facts. It's more lore. But here, it, there's almost it's more about persecution than anything else.
2: Well, it's also we're coming into an age of more and more studio interference, right? Especially on these giant blockbusters that has everyone that has everyone's eyes on it. This isn't the heavens or the heart <laughs> heaven's gate. Uh, story you know imploding a studio what really happened and they they made a documentary out of that I believe you can watch it on YouTube it's just heaven's gate uh, you know like inside or behind the scenes or something and um, you know that is just a disaster story but this is the next step this is a is a disaster story we love those and a what if we love those you know yeah and there's so much bringing your own narrative to it It, it, it's endless amounts of conversation it's also not you know hearts of darkness it's a true masterpiece but it was hell to get there uh speaking of the 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 documentary about apocalypse now uh fantastic film and i think there's there's stories these narratives are substantial they're they are interesting but right now we don't know anything and i don't know if it behooves us um especially in the case of ant-man a movie where you don't gain anything from being interested in the Edgar Wright story I don't think I mean you're you're missing out on a, on a pretty good film by obsessing over what Edgar Wright could have done as if he is your friend or as if you need to defend him in these business transactions <laughs> you know is that is that part of it is that like do we feel closer to filmmakers because of Social media and, uh, and, and the narratives, the, the daily news rush of just hearing production updates. Oh, they're going to reshoots on Fantastic Four. Oh, Josh Trank's getting pushback from the studio. Hey, he's my bro. He's directing a movie yeah, based on a property a I care about.
3: I think there is, I think the internet has really fed into this idea of everyone liking to pretend that they are an insider, uh, that they know something that they're not supposed to. I think, you know, you see someone like. L may be uh Dave's friend who has made uh, something of <laughs> uh, a career. I'm now
0: gonna refer to like everybody that you worked for as like your
3: personal friend. They're <laughs> uh, your friend. I, I, I wasn't saying that as a slight. I thought you guys actually were friends, but uh
0: Oh no no no, we we are friends. <laughs> I'm just saying it's like that's the I've I've had a lot of people uh contact me out of some things that he did this week that I don't agree with, and I wanted to just throw that out there. That Yes. I, appreci- I think we have been friends but
3: uh, have, to recently to profiled
2: on Grantland. Way. you can put it frame yes, it that way uh,
3: recently <laughs> profiled on and has been a career out of that um and i think that uh it's something that i like to be very keenly self-aware because i work in this industry but i'm in a particular place in it where uh i it, it is no part of my job really to know what's happening beyond the scene i don't have to know anything for the most part beyond what is put on screen in front of me um and uh i don't like to pretend that i because I think uh, it can dilute and and poison criticism. Obviously, these are sweeping generalizations and there are exceptions, etc. However, it's something that I like to keep in mind. But I do think that the internet is really fitting into that in a way that we've never seen before.
2: We we should broach this subject. You know, you're talking about some cases where maybe discussing the meta-narrative of a movie in, in a review or in a conversation you're having about the movie, in the case of many of our listeners, um, is, is makes sense. It's part of your conversation about this movie. Or at other times where you should really set it aside and, and ignore and, and just talk about the finished product. When When is it acceptable and when is it I not? Think,
0: I think we hit that balance really well on this show with Fantastic Four and Ant-Man because I think we were really fair to Ant-Man as its own movie from Peyton Reed, but we did acknowledge that it was a movie that was probably, you know, sort of patched together uh, uh, to hit, hit a schedule. Well,
2: the good thing about the, the Marvel movies is they're all directed in pre-visualization anyway, and then they're handed to directors. So, you
0: well, know, but, but then, like, <laughs> that's probably why I agree. It would have been irresponsible, I feel, to talk about Fantastic Four as if that was a product that somebody thought was you know something they were putting out be it the studio or the director like for that movie every nobody wants to, to claim authorship over that so we kind of have to talk about the fact that nobody wants to claim authorship over that
1: so i have a theory i'm wondering i'm wondering if the sony hack is kind of ushering us into a kind of a golden age of interest in this stuff because of the extent to which that revealed how much stuff is not director storming off set or you know our actors arguing with each other but like Studio heads sending nasty emails to each other and somebody complaining about Angelina Jolie and David Fincher getting involved, like really petty stuff, like all these people making all the decisions are just like us. I, I mean, I read them and felt bad about them, but couldn't really resist it. And I think the level of interest in like whose agent got involved and how did, you know, someone get signed on board to this and how many points did they get on the back end? Like, I think that that was an access to this stuff that a lot of us have never really had before, and I think there might, it might have fueled more interest in stuff like this.
0: I mean, definitely. There was something where Lexi Alexander, the director of, you know, the Punisher Warzone movie, uh, tweeted, like, "Could if you haven't worked a day on set, like, shut the fuck up over about, like, Fantastic Four or something like that. But it's like, now it's... With the way that, you know, entertainment journalism is covering it, plus, like, the hack, it's like the layman is capable of at least feeling like they're as part of decisions. And the weird thing is that, like, in terms of Hollywood history and in terms of things that are happening in the now, like, sometimes the weird story really is what happened. This is, yeah. this so, is like
3: Harry Knoll's dream. I mean, this is exactly what he had in mind when he started Ain't Cool News, uh, this culture yeah. where the layman could be a, a scooper, a spy, um, You know, I I think this is the world that he envisioned and had a hand in bringing into being.
0: But the, the reason I think it's sort of like an evolution over what like something like that is, is we become interested in the process, which at least is the first step towards understanding the process, one would hope. Hmm. Uh, and I don't know if that is better or worse, but I'm glad that we're making that a larger class of film goer than it's been in the past. Well,
1: I don't know that stories like this get. It. I mean, I, I see what you mean about like following more about what's happening in the set, and like Christian Bale screaming at the DP of *Terminator Salvation* taught people what a DP was, but. Everyone on a something <laughs> That's like Fantastic Four.
3: good for you. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> but, like, uh, everyone's going to have a different version of the story of what happened on Fantastic Four. I don't know that there's ever going to be clarity about what exactly went on there because so many things clearly went wrong. So there's a, there's a he, should, he said, she said to it that I don't know that it's teaching us anything, but it's fun.
0: Well, yeah, but, like, I've had more um, conversations with people uh, today about what it means to cut three set pieces before your movie begins production, just like on a serious level, like he's shooting on a green screen. Like, did they say you have less budget or do you have these three less scenes? And like, what's the difference between those two things? Mm. And like the fact that at least those like questions are being asked is like a totally different step from like, I don't know if you read like old Starlog magazines where like nobody has any idea. They're like, why isn't Spock writing more episodes? It's like <laughs> nobody nobody had any idea. And so it's nice at least to see, I mean, I'm much more in favor of stuff like Loft Soul or The Death of Superman Lives where it's just like this thing's been dead for so long that now we could return to it uh, than I am towards making the process part of your pre-review of like a movie. But I'm happy that there's an interest in it even when it's not like a property necessarily. Like if there's some sort of drama and uh, how a director interacts with the studio these days that people are at least asking questions. Hopefully we could, you know, right. collectively push uh, them towards the n- greater understanding. I just
2: think that the conversation needs to be nuanced enough that we can give a movie that has gone through this rumor the, the benefit of the doubt. Like, or, or that you would go see it in theaters or that you can accept that it might be good even if someone got trounced. You know, I think of Ratatouille. Wonderful film. Um pretty sure the original director, uh, who was that? I think it was John oh, Pinkava. John Pinkava. John Pinkava. Um, right, done. Rejected, you know, fired. Brad Bird steps in. It's wonderful. I mean, it's an amazing Or movie.
0: The Bear and the Bow, well, which didn't have a bait and okay, switch, well, versus Brave, which was, did have a bait and switch. I was
1: going to say there's movies like Brave or I think Fantastic Four, especially, that even if you watch it 20 years from now, it, you, it's, uh, it's not understandable unless you understand what kind of happened behind the scenes. And, or you guys mentioned uh, the uh, 2010 Clash of the Titans, whatever that was, and how insane that movie is. And I think that also is something that you really just have to know the context to figure out what the hell Wait,
3: you're seeing is on that screen. The Flash is that the first Clash or is it the sequel? That's that was this the
1: first one that was uh, hastily converted to 3D for no oh, reason.
3: Oh, yes, yes. The Clash of the Titans, where the tagline on the billboard outside of my apartment at the time was, <laughs> the Clash Titans of the will Titans,
0: clash. <laughs> Titans Will Clash. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, I forgot about
1: also,
0: that. Also,
3: unrelated, but worth mentioning on the podcast, just because it was bizarre, is that and I tweeted about this the other day. I actually retweeted someone else who noticed the same thing and proved that I was not having a completely lucid delusion was that uh, driving by LaGuardia Airport, I saw a huge billboard over the highway for the Book of Eli, oh, which, yeah. <laughs> which has been, uh, I guess, they just put things over it for the past five years, four years, whatever, however long it's been. See, these uh, are the movies that I wish had studio
2: interference when they were being made. Whoa. They would Whoa.
3: Disasters? But it was like being in a post-apocalyptic movie and like years have passed, but there's been nobody around to update the... Advertisements because there've been no new products and it was very. Bizarre. That seems
2: very true to the Book of Eli. Yes,
1: really. I thought of another good example of something that would have been treated much differently in our current in- internet. Jonah Hex, remember that? Yeah,
2: Jonah Hex. He after that turned wait, into wait, who stepped the- onto that one? Uh, Jimmy think- Hayward was the original director. Was it the Crank guys?
1: N- Dean Ta- I thought Neville Dean and Taylor got fired.
2: No. Maybe, but what's what's amazing about Maybe. Jonah Hex? They
3: wrote is, is that um, you know there was so much talk this weekend about. What a disaster Fantastic Four was when it opened to $27 million, I believe, was the tally. Uh, Jonah Hex gross its domestic total, uh, or its entire run in U.S. theaters, was $10 million. It earned, <laughs> it earned on its opening weekend, $5,379,365. Uh, it's Jonah inconceivable Hex. now. Of course, its production budget was $47 million versus the 100 plus. Fantastic Four.
1: God knows how much Fantastic Four costs. Right.
3: but And Fantastic Four, I mean, what's amazing and I think really deadly about how Hollywood operates these days is that Fantastic Four uh, will not ultimately, when you factor in foreign sales, I mean, it's going to lose money. But between uh, international markets where it will not perform as, disastrous, as disastrously as it did here, no one in China knows who the fuck Josh Trank is. Uh, you know, they, there's no Twitter there. Weibo. I don't think he's on it. Um, oh,
1: you! I, I wonder if Weibo has gotten wind of this. There's movie nerds in China. I'm not
3: saying that they're oblivious. I'm just saying that it's not. It's not Twitter, um, and uh, you know the, the films cross borders uh, and transform along the way. Uh, Fantastic Four is not going to be the giant lost leader that that people might imagine it to be, and uh, you know it's not. It seems insane, and I still, if if I were a betting man, I would still say that. There will probably not be a fantastic four two again. Uh, but, fantastic eight, right? But uh, but maybe there will be. <laughs>
0: I would I would actually take yeah I would take the the opposite bet from David. But in terms of like I don't know it's it's a weird atmosphere out there with superhero movies because like Mark Webb had a whole plot cut out of Amazing Spider Man and they still gave him the sequel and then did it to him again. So, like, sometimes it takes two two flops to kill some of these Marvel properties.
1: I have the answer about Jonah Hex, by the way. Yes. Oh. Jimmy Hayward is accredited director. Mm. Neville and Taylor are accredited for the screenplay. Mm. Also, are you aware that oh. Michael Fassbender, Will Arnett, John Gallagher yes. Jr., and Michael Shannon were all in this movie? Yes.
2: Wait, I finally remember. Francis Lawrence took over, right?
1: No. no. Oh, Jimmy Francis Hayward Lawrence is accredited director. Uh, Francis Lawrence took over I something emergence.
2: else. Incidentally, Jonah Hex was
3: one hour and 21 minutes long. Uh, I think <laughs> that uh, not a knock against short movies. Mistress America, which is one of the year's very best films, comes up to the theaters this Friday, is a tight 84 minutes. Typically, superhero movies as we know them, anything under 110 minutes is reason for concern.
1: is a Fantastic Four, like... Eighty-two minutes.
3: It, no, it's nine. I believe it's it's ninety. Ninety-three. 93. Minutes, yeah.
0: After the cut was two hours and twenty minutes in January.
1: Wow. Yeah. So. Wow. Indeed. Jonah Hex.
0: <laughs> Jonah Hex. So we end on Jonah Hex.
1: I remember being at that comic con and seeing Michael Fassbender sitting up on that panel and looking like he just died. That does it for today's Fighting in the War, room. we'll be back on Friday to talk about some movies we've been hinting at, Us, Straight Outta Compton and Man From U.N.C.L.E., and, you know, maybe other stuff, favorite sees movies I've never heard of before, so we might have some of those too. In the meantime, tell the people who you are.
2: Hi, I'm Matt Patches. I am the senior writer for Esquire.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And we have a website, fightingintheworm.com. We post all the episodes. You can comment. You can scream. You can, uh, I don't know, straight out of Compton. Screaming. uh, Screaming. Screaming. All right. Scream. Screamo. uh, Fightingintheworm.com.
3: I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the editor at Large... Oh, uh, let's do this the other way, but I usually do it. I am the associate film editor of Time Out New York and the editor at Large of Little White Live Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at David Erlich, And you can find all of us together on Facebook Fighting in the War Room. Send us nasty messages. Dave loves it.
0: I do. That would be Dave with a 7. D-A-7-E is my Twitter handle. Uh, so i write about uh, pop culture and movies and uh, all the things I talked about in this podcast. The latino the number one place for probably not true movie rumors apparently Uh, Geek.com as long as the number one place really that's what I'm going for and Forbes.com as well as all my podcasts at FightingInTheWarRoom.com
1: and I'm Katie Rich you can find me at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Katie Rich K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H Twitter's also a great place to find all of us at FIT. W R where you can talk to us and also answer this week's lightning round question, which was
0: in honor of straight out of Compton, which musician would you like to get see a would you like to see (laughs) get a biopic? Yeah. Uh,
1: thanks for listening and we'll be back talking to you on Friday.